is Sit Rep on VFBS with Kate Jabot. IS bombs NATO member Turkey, a one-off or war against the alliance? NATO's most important exercise this century on transition to war. US top general pinpoints Russia as public enemy number one and the secret conversation President Putin didn't know was overheard. Plus, five million refugees from the Middle East wars. Is this the biggest instability problem in the region? Turkey's Prime Minister says the authorities have identified the suspected bomber who is thought to have links with the Islamic State group. So does this mean there are active IS units operating in a NATO country? Well, I'm joined by former leader of the Liberal Democrats, Lord Ashdown, and BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Lord Ashdown, if this is an attack by IS on a NATO country, is it an attack on all NATO countries? No, it's not. Active IS units, probably, in Britain. Now, I mean, it's a ridiculous uh, statement, if I may say so. Um, the, uh, they're, they're going to infiltrate all countries, active IS units. Uh, so, no, it's not. But apart from anything else, I think I'm right in saying that the famous Clause 4 of NATO agreement uh, requires it to be attacked by, if I recall, I thought it was a state, but maybe it isn't. But the answer is no. So what do you think NATO should do, if anything, about this particular attack? I think it should, each of us should help the other to ensure that the threat um, of IS attacks in any of our countries by agents infiltrated by or by, by those who have been radicalised is best, is best um, counteracted. I mean, there is a real danger here, you know, that we treat this as something that has never happened before. It's absolute nonsense. It's always possible to encourage young men to think it's a great thing for the cause in which they stand to go out and kill people, sometimes in other people's countries. I mean, what was Rodolfo? faction in Germany about? What was the IRA about? What were the anarchists at the end of the 19th century about? This is one of those things that happens in our time. It's a particularly virulent form of this, and it's dangerous in the sense that we now have instruments of mass travel, which means they can get everywhere. But as a phenomenon, this is not new. Of course, the knee-jerk reaction is to think military reaction um, and leave diplomacy in the cupboard. You've been <clears> arguing very much to put diplomacy first. Just describe how that diplomacy would work, who would be involved, and what would they be trying to achieve? Well, since this is BFBS, I can, I can say something that I would not be able to say on another programme, which is to talk about the great, um, the great, um, military, um, the great military philosopher Clausewitz, who said that war is the extension of diplomacy. He used the German word politic, but it ends with a K and actually means diplomacy. War is the extension of diplomacy by other means. Any war that you have that is not connected with a diplomatic aim is a war you are not going to succeed in. I remember when that was exactly the case in Bosnia, when we sought to go to war without constructing a diplomatic framework for this. The wisdom of Clausewitz has been totally lost on the West um, since the days of George Bush Jr. George Bush Sr., by the way, constructed a diplomatic coalition with Arab nations and won the first Gulf War. George Bush Jr. thought he could do it with high explosive and lost. We did exactly the same in Afghanistan. We failed to observe one of the basic principles of building peace after war, which is involve the neighbors with a regional diplomatic structure in which we could create peace in Afghanistan, and we lost. We did exactly the same in Libya when we could have created a regional coalition not just to fight the war but reconstruct the country. We used high explosive 
explosive to blast Gestapi out, Gestapi, Gaddafi out of um, out of Libya and have lost the peace. And now we're doing the same with ISIL. We are not going to defeat ISIL just by dropping more Western high explosive on Arab Muslims. We may even increase their, um, we may even help them recruit. What we should be doing is constructing a wider diplomatic uh, framework which includes both Sunni and Shia. Uh, the coalition we've got is too narrow, too Western-led and too military, and too much tending towards widening the Sunni-Shia division rather than closing it. So a coalition which includes moderate Arab Sunni states, which includes, of course, Turkey, as it must, which includes Tehran, that possibility is now open to us as a result of the recent rapprochement, and which includes Russia. Why not? Russia's got a real dog in this game, mm. in fact, a bigger one than we have, because Sunni jihadism is now dividing Russia along the lines of the old Islamic republics of Chechnya and Dagestan. Now, if you do that, you then have a context which can make better sense of military force. But absent that, it will not and mm. the force will not work, and we will not win this battle. Okay, let's just talk about... And, and, by, and by the way, if I may, Kate, I mean, the real contribution Britain can make is not by adding its widow's might of extra explosive to a vast pile of explosive that's already available to other air forces, by, by the way, which there isn't enough intelligence to be able to target so mm. they can use it effectively, but begin, begin to use our connections with Europe to put together that wider coalition I've just talked about. Christopher Lee. Um, um, a great <clears throat> and a great disciple of Clausewitz was uh, Michel Foucault, who said that in fermentation, fermentation of conflict, it is best to gather the neighbours. Now, extending Foucault and Clausewitz together is quite a powerful diplomatic idea. But in fact, in some extent, that is happening, and that is the, the slow realization that people like the Saudis, the regional regional commands, have to take part in this because that eventually is gathering the neighbours. Lord Ashdown, let's just talk specifically uh, about Turkey. Yes, Turkey. Yes, 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 but first of all, it takes, it's taken far too long to do it, and then we've lost ground and territory. Secondly, the coalition that is being assembled, including the Saudis uh, and the Qataris, etc., is a Sunni coalition. Now, the real danger in the Middle East is not ISIL. The real danger is a widening Sunni-Shia conflict which engulfs the whole region, draws in Russia on one side, draws us in on the other. Mm. So, you know, this has to be a wider and coalition of course, that brings in Of course, the, the, well. the most recent Turkey... Uh, our target is Turkey, and in itself it has its own problems. What do you think Turkey is going to be dealing with most, the Kurds or Islamic State? Well, it's perfectly fair to say that if you are bringing the Turks into this, you have to begin to address the Kurdish problem. Um, that is the problem that splits the Kurds between the Turkish Kurds and the Syrian Kurds and the Iraqi Kurds for that matter too but that's a problem you've got anyway doesn't it? you don't need a diplomatic um, coalition to have that problem, you've got it now already you are having Kurds um, flexing their muscles for an independent state so that's an issue that has to be dealt with it's neither helped nor hindered probably helped actually if you do it within a diplomatic coalition because what it leads to is a broader regional settlement we will not solve the problems of the conflagration in the Middle East without a broader regional settlement, which, mm. by the way, also has to involve Israel, because the burning coal at the heart of this conflagration is the illegal occupation under international law by Israel of somebody else's territory. I just, I mean, what, what would that settlement be, Christopher? I don't think there is one. And I think that is the, yes, that's the, that's the conundrum. 
that you um, we're back to this old thing that if you you know you, you can make all the treaties etc with your friends but you're not looking to make them with your friends you're looking to make them with the person you've identified rightly or wrongly as your enemy and there is the difficulty mm, let's talk now about NATO's <laughs> biggest exercise <laughs> this century can I just come in there just very briefly Lord really Ashton that really is based on a complete misunderstanding. All of the people I've noted are not our enemies. They're our friends. They all have a direct interest in beating ISIL. Tehran does. Russia does. Now, why not bring them together? They're not our enemies. Now, we may have a difficulty with ISIL. They're our enemy. But it's far easier to defeat them if we get together with our friends who have a common interest in doing so and create a framework to do that. It just seems to be common sense. Mm. Let's talk now about NATO's biggest exercise this century, Trident Juncture 2015. It's in its final planning stage, and it starts in October with 36,000 troops and 30 NATO and Allied forces taking part. Um, Christopher, can you tell us a bit more about it? Okay. Where it's going to be held. Uh, this is a continuation of exercises. They, they, they started. Uh, they started in the 1900s. Um, but but the most important part of it is the numbers of people they bring together. It's not so much the 36,000 personnel and the 30 Allied powers, but it's the sort of people uh, that's coming together. The exercise will be fought. Uh, or played out uh, after the, for about a month after the, uh, October the 2nd. It will involve people as wide as part as Finland, who are not members of NATO, Australia, um, the African Union is going to be involved in this, and then you bring in the Organisation of Security and Cooperation in Europe as observers and to put their part into it. The NGOs are being brought into it. But fundamentally, what you're doing is taking a command exercise and we go into that transition, what we were used to call the TTW, the transition to war. I think it's probably uh, when you think there are more than 12 major international organizations, aid agencies, non-NGOs um, in involved in it. You're trying to figure out what you can do, how you can do it, and are you doing it as best you can. And one example of this is you bring in all the defence contractors and they say, OK, we can improve on that weapon system or that, that cyberspace uh, 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 system. Uh, Lord Ashdown, a couple of years ago when we spoke to you about the state of NATO, you had big concerns mm. about the Alliance's future. Have those fears been allayed now? No, I don't think they have, because I think what we have to realise now is that um, we are moving from a monopolar world dominated by a single colossus, the United States, where having as a singular treaty, the only treaty, the one which we depend on most um, as NATO, was the sensible thing to do. NATO now is one of a number of treaties that we're going to need, and I think we're moving into a period of much more flexible diplomacy. NATO and the Atlantic relationship will always be our most important alliance, but that is not to exclude others that we will have for, um, for, our, for our best interest. I mean, take a single case. The Somali pirates. What is the largest unit fighting the Somali pirates off the Horn of Africa? The Chinese. We have a direct common interest with them, not NATO, um, to uh, framework to frame our actions there. So, NATO has to be part, but not the monopoly of our structures for defence and diplomacy. And that means that within NATO, we're, particularly on either side of the Atlantic, we're going to have to learn how to uh, pursue, as both of us will, different interests while keeping NATO alive and powerful. All right, we'll leave it there. Lord Ashdown, thank you very much for your time today. PFBS,
Why does the U.S. Army's new top general see Russia as the biggest threat to U.S. security when the president does not? General Mark Milley, chosen by Mr Obama to be the next chief of staff of the army, is the latest to come out and say it. Well, Mike Evans has written about this in The Times today and joins us now. A good speech today, Mike. Um, who's saying what exactly then about Russia? Uh General Milley is the, is, is the latest one. Um, he was preceded uh, some weeks ago by General Dunford, who is to be the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, in America. Th- they've all reassessed uh, the, the sort of threats ahead. And when they uh, appear before the uh, Senate committee that's going to confirm their nominations, uh, they're always asked the question, well, you know, who, who do we fear the most? And both General Dunford and now General Milley have said, well, without question, Russia is the number one threat to American security, which is really quite the most extraordinary uh, change of view uh, that you could imagine when the Cold War was over you know, a long time ago. Mm. Uh, President Obama uh, has been focusing all his uh, efforts uh, towards Iran and uh, ISIS, and now Russia has suddenly become, in the terms, yep. the view of his, of his military advisers is the main threat. You say, you say extraordinary, but the point they make is this is this is the country which possesses the nuclear weapons which could destroy America. No, I absolutely agree. And if you're a military man, you you will look at it in a totally different way from, say, uh, the Secretary of State in the in the State Department. Uh, and, and clearly, the, the the view of the White House has to take into account all the different opinions, including the State Department. And so that's why they've come up with a slightly uh, less uh, aggressive view as as the military men. But the military men, you're quite right, say, look what Russia has got, and look what they are currently doing. What is their intention in the future? It's our job, our responsibility, to be prepared for whatever their intention may be. Uh, And that is the big question, isn't it, Christopher? Nobody really knows what President Putin's intention is in the future. Perhaps he doesn't even know himself. I mean, the classic uh, military position is this, and the intelligence position is this. You may know somebody's capabilities, but you don't know what their intentions are to use them. Look at what we're actually hearing here, and we've heard it quite a lot from Dempsey, for example, the the, uh, the, uh, present uh, chairman. Um, They're all of a certain age group, their formative years, and this is the important part of it, is their formative years was growing up in militarily with an identifiable enemy. Each one of them gets a daily briefing, which includes capabilities, includes in, and also dispositions. They get political briefings as well. If you put it in the context of who else would be the enemy? The enemy would be, in, in European terms probably, uh, uh, Daesh, ISIS, ISIS uh, whatever we want to call it. But not if you live in continental Europe and also if you're getting the sort of briefings that they are. And after all, at the end of the day, end of the day, the only people or the only nation that can make a big dent in American society, of which the Americans have so much invested to prevent that, is the United States. And another thing happening, of course, is the Americans are facing a, something like a trillion dollar cut in the defence budget. It's the sort of thing you would tell the president, wouldn't you? Mike Evans, do, do you think President Obama is going to change his stance, the, these kind of things having been said? Uh, with Russia, no, I don't. I mean, I think he's been pretty tough as far as, you know, sanctions go. He's supported that. But I think he knows, as I suspect Putin does, that it's, it's much better to maintain relations, have diplomatic uh, relationship than it is to, uh, to, to renew the Cold War sort of rhetoric. But that's, 
I know that's the sort of Cold War. We are getting that sort of action and, and rhetoric at the moment. But I think Obama is, Obama's interests are, are pretty well elsewhere. But he is listening to, the, to his military advisers, and he has agreed uh, to send uh, armored vehicles to Poland and, and uh, the Baltic states to send troops mm. on exercises. So he has taken those steps. But I don't think, you know, if you were to ask President Obama face-to-face, well, who do you think is, your, is, is the gravest threat to American security? I, I sort of somehow doubt he would say Russia. Christopher, it's, it's quite a, a rather confusing picture, isn't it? Because uh, we were talking earlier with Lord Ashdown, and he was suggesting that Russia should be brought in to into a kind of partnership to deal with Islamic State. And on the other side, we're told that Russia's the biggest existential threat to the US. I mean... What are we to Russia and what is it to us? It's all ex- existentialism, isn't it? Well, this is, what I mean, they, this is the buzzword <laughs> at the moment, isn't it? The existential threat. Yes, and not, I, I don't think any of the generals could actually define it quite clearly. I'm very Mike, can you enlighten us but, on but, that? But, hang on, just before we do, Mike. It, here is, <laughs> the, here, just remind ourselves of one thing. Until the whole thing about Crimea and Ukraine, Russia was drawn in to the so-called family, the alliance, they attended NATO meetings. They were a sort of uh, an existentialist uh, a partner, if, if you wish. Mm-hmm. And that is really what the, the Obama people would hope could, could, could come out uh, of the sanctions and eventually that Russia would get back into being a partner. What Paddy was saying, Paddy Ashton was saying, you know, you need the Russias, the Chinas, etc., to try and solve other problems. Um, Mike, um, existential threats. We've had David Cameron talking about IS being it. We've had the generals in America talking about it. Um, what do you think is the biggest threat? Well, basically, it'd be, what, it, what that phrase means is what damage they could do to your national security. What, what, is, the, what is the capability, their maximum capability? And in terms of Russia, uh, they have a hell of a lot of nuclear weapons. So that, that in, a, in a sense, hasn't changed. What, what's changed is the language. And uh, Putin has already changed the language of the Russian military doctrine, which now includes the, the potential use of nuclear weapons. Uh, and he's, they've carried out exercises involving the use of nuclear weapons. No one, no one imagines that Putin is stupid enough to start launching nuclear weapons. But existential threat means that the particular country, Russia in this case, has got the capability in its power to destroy the United States. Now, the Islamic uh, State, or whatever you like to call them, does not have that ability at all. But they present... Uh, a different sort of threat altogether. They, they present a threat uh, to individual Americans, to individual American national interests, uh, and, and that is, I think, in, in certainly in Obama's mind, is something which is at the top of his list at the moment. All right, Mike Evans from The Times, thanks for joining us today. Um, Christopher, you've got details of what appears to be a bit of a strange and disturbing conversation involving Russian President, President Putin. Yeah, and it ties very much in what we've just been talking to with uh, Mike Evans and also with Paddy Ashton earlier. Uh, Mikhail um, uh, Saakashvili, who is the governor of Odessa, who's on the Black Sea, very important, about uh, uh, a million people, but very important area. He was talking on in his office on the fifth floor of the government building in, uh, in Odessa to President Putin. And Saakashvili and Putin apparently didn't know that this thing was being recorded in some way. And a couple of people got hold of what appeared to be very you know, garbled transcripts. But I'll tell you a couple of things that have come out of it. Putin apparently, apparently has said um, that we're going to make Georgia, which is in Europe, 
Georgia, like northern Cyprus, in other words, separated. Uh, he says that uh, um, uh, Ukraine is not Ukraine is not a country; it is a state. No, it is a territory, and in that mm. case, territory can be invaded. He also says that the Baltic states are cannot be defended, and that Saskatchewan's uh, opinion of this is that Putin will put pressure by exercises on the Baltic uh, borders uh, probably next year. When, now, was, the this, when was this conversation? Uh, it was about 10 days ago. And the Americans are saying that they expect that way the uh, Russians have been training and putting different formations together, category B formations together, that is very likely that they will probably start doing a, a leaning on the border, as the Americans call it, uh, probably in the spring of next year. Still to come, how the UNHCR is dealing with the Middle East refugee crisis and world leaders on tour. Who's off where to talk to whom? This is BFBS. Parliament has now closed for summer recess, but before the big summer shutdown, the Defence Select Committee published a report. Rethinking defence to meet new threats. Um, we tried to get a committee member to talk about it, but um, they're all abroad. Uh, Christopher, you'll do. <laughs> What's in it? I mean, one of them's actually in Bournemouth. Oh, well, yeah, I saw him they, the other they day may think Bournemouth. it's a long way. <laughs> been to Bournemouth? No, you wouldn't go there. I'm sure on the I have actually, there. yes. No, no. Nothing wrong with Bournemouth. Carry on. I'm sorry. Um, what we have here is that in the last parliament, the House of Commons Defence Committee um, questioned government positions on all sorts of things through everything from procurement to manpower use uh, to threat lectures, etc. And the government has the right to reply to those reports, and that's what it's done. And it says, for example, um, that given the new threat as it sees it, you know, yet another existentialist <laughs> threat as it sees it, um, this is how it must respond to the committee. So when the committee says that you haven't got enough uh, I mean, armoured vehicles, for example, it says, well, hang on, we've just, we've just ordered 568 of the new Scout vehicle, armoured vehicle, and things like this. What we have to look for is to see how this translates into the strategic defence review, which we're is it the basis of, of that or not? Or is it a, no, it's not the basis. Spending review, I suppose. Yeah, so it's, yes, it's, 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 it's not the uh, it's not the basis of it. But all the criticisms, I think, they really do have to take notice now because they're so public and so publicly debated, and they will be even more so under Julian Lewis's chairmanship at the House of Commons Defence Committee now, because uh, he's almost a sort of. Uh, I don't know, he's almost a sort of mascot of the, of the military. In, in, he believes in the military so so much that he believes everything they say. He's a sort of an anorak of the, of, of the military. He will see him on regimental parade then at the front, uh, we won't being led along on, by somebody. No, but he will be standing to attention. <laughs> Right, well, refugees are flooding into Europe from the two major wars in the Middle East, but millions of them are simply displaced in the region itself. The big aid agencies are there, but they cannot cope. Every day, the problem gets bigger. The toughest job of all is with the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. Well, on the line from Geneva is Ariane Rummery. Good to speak to you today, Ariane. How many refugees are you dealing with every day, and where are they? Well, around the world, there's an, almost 60 million displaced people. Some of those are refugees who've actually crossed a border, but more and more there are people who are displaced but remain within their own country. And if you take the two big crises in the Middle East at the moment, 
uh, Syria, for example, has generated four million refugees that are just staying in the immediate region, but then there's another 7.6 million people who are still displaced within inside Syria. Similarly, in Iraq, uh, the vast majority of people who've been displaced over the past year and a half uh, are in Iraq. So there's three million internally displaced people just in Iraq itself and another couple of hundred thousand that have moved to neighboring countries. Can you remember anything on this scale before? No, this is without a doubt the biggest refugee population from a single conflict that we're facing in a generation. Certainly in the early 1990s, there were large numbers of Afghan refugees, uh, six million of them uh, in about 1991, but not so many internally displaced. But certainly this is the biggest humanitarian crisis of our time, but we're simply not getting enough support to meet the basic needs of these people who've been displaced in this crisis, which is now dragging on to the fifth year. Refugees on this scale can be, I presume, as destabilising as the wars themselves that they're fleeing from. Well, there's no doubt that uh, the, the neighbouring countries that are bearing the brunt of this refugee crisis, there's a lot of attention on the increase of refugees coming to Europe, and indeed there has been an increase, but that's still a tiny fraction of those that are hosted in neighbouring countries. And it's very difficult for those countries to cope. If you take a country like Lebanon, for example, a country which has just a population of 4 million people, is hosting almost 1.2 million Syrian refugees. Now, that's just a massive influx of people. Now, that's very difficult to cope with their basic infrastructure, their water systems, their health, their education systems. There's actually more uh, school-age Syrian refugee children in Lebanon than then there are children, Lebanese children that need to enrol in the system. And which, country, so and which country is at the most risk, do you think, because of the influx of refugees? Well, I think that all the neighbouring countries, uh, Jordan and Lebanon, with smaller populations, Turkey has a bigger population, has the most Syrian uh, refugees. Uh, they do definitely need more support. Um, and this is what we've been calling for. Countries like Lebanon and Jordan are, you know, traditionally middle-income countries. They don't normally qualify for the most development assistance. But we really think that we need a re-looking at this whole aid architecture so these countries can get the support just to bolster their infrastructure and their systems because they're really bearing the brunt of this crisis, which is the responsibility of the whole world. Christopher Lee. Just put in uh, just two points here. If you think about the worldwide displaced persons, refugees, it's the same number almost as the population, the whole population of the United Kingdom. Just imagine that for a start. The second part of it, you take 7.6 million people as displaced people in, in, say, Syria, um, and then in, in Iraq. These are not neatly lined out tents where you can actually feed people all the time, give them medical treatment, set up hospitals and, and, and schools, etc. This is part of the conflict, which makes the conflict even more difficult to resolve. And so I think I, I probably mm. see the whole refugee uh, problem, certainly in the Middle East, as part, not just a, a knock-on from the, the conflict, but as part of the difficulty of actually trying to resolve it. Ariam Rumri, um, presumably huge pressures being put on the UNHCR. What do you want the international community to do? Well, uh, the first thing is that there needs to be more effort put into resolving these conflicts, and this is not the job of us as humanitarians. We can only pick up the pieces, but... Uh, there needs to be effort to find a political solution to these conflicts. I mean, first of all, that's very, very mm. important. 
and then in the meantime to really uh, give support to the humanitarian programs to the major hosting countries at a scale which is proportionate to the scale of the conflict and that is not what we're seeing. Uh, we did at the end of last year, for example, with the Syria conflict, launch an appeal uh, to help the humanitarian programs and to date halfway through the year it's only 25% funded. All right. So we need both those things uh, and we need them concurrently. All right, Ariane Romery, thank you for your time but let you get back to work. Um, Christopher, holiday time, uh, not for everyone as the conversation we just had um, proves, um, but world leaders on the move, who's gone where? Let's well, not talk about Bournemouth, though. We won't talk about Bournemouth because Ash Carter, the American Defence Secretary, is not going to Bournemouth, but Iraq. Um, really? Yeah. Um, okay. it, 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 when people do this, they do this at Christmas. If you've got troops in, we used to have troops in Afghanistan, and everybody used to go off to Afghanistan and, and see them. The other interesting thing is uh, President Obama uh, is going to Kenya. It's a reminder of the identity First thing. time back in... Yeah, this is the, this is the identity thing, which is very, very, very important with mm. the whole of East Africa. And this is where, for example, we're talking about refugees. A lot of the refugees come from that part of the world. And you're going where? <sighs> I should be here, of course, <laughs> at your elbow. <laughs> well, that's all the time we have for this week. My thanks to all of our contributors and, of course, to, to you, Christopher, who's here missing its holiday. I don't believe that. I'm off Do to Bournemouth. <laughs> Do keep your comments coming in on Twitter. We are at BFBS Sitrep. Join us again this time next week for, for more of the same and perhaps a few surprises. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye for now. News. News. Sport. Sport. And music, music. for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.